So, Chris, I do this whenever I run into you. I almost feel obliged to say that I watched you interview actors <laughs> growing up, which is to say that you've been interviewing actors for how many years now? It's been over 40 years, actually. I, I counted not long ago. Man. Okay. So what you're doing here for us today, um, this cover story on Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors, the stars of Creed Three. when you talk to them and you survey the work that they've made, what part of making this film jumped out to you? I love the fact that guys who now have a little industry respect and juice are using that... Michael B. Jordan, who is now a king of Hollywood, who is bankable, and who could act in just about anything he wanted to, now wants to direct. And that's that's a power move in the best sense, but it's also about taking charge of your message. Because you could make more money doing a lot of other things. And in particular, both for Jonathan Majors and for Michael B. Jordan, their rarefied status in the movie business allows them to incorporate aspects of their personal lives into this movie, Creed Three, And while autobiography isn't necessarily the highest form of art, it gives it a kind of intensity, a sort of personal feel that I think makes it that much more exciting to watch. Well, an actor just deciding to direct, Chris. I do want to jump into that a bit more because there are stakes here with this sort of a move, right? I mean, in your 40 years of doing this, I am sure you have seen this specific kind of a bet go horribly at times. But for this one, give me a window into what Michael B. Jordan specifically wanted to do as a director. What was the scene that you maybe talked to him about that still sticks with you? Well, the one that sort of stuck out was right from the beginning. It's a scene in which Adonis Creed, who is now kind of retired from the ring, comes out of the gym that he works out of. And there's a guy leaning against his late model ride, a guy he doesn't immediately recognize but who turns out to be an old friend of his from his past, from his childhood past, whose name is Damian Anderson. And Damian is just coming out of 18 years in prison. And so you can see the two of them sizing each other up and off the cuff, Adonis Creed decides, let's go out and have a meal. Really so Adonis can figure out what it is that Damian wants. How long were you locked up? 18 years, bro. Just got out last week. Glad to have you back out, huh? I know I've been away a long time, but I kept myself in shape. I still got gas in the tank. Come by the gym. And that scene in the diner, uh, I think, is the first scene that Michael B. Jordan did with Jonathan Majors and mm. the first scene Michael B. Jordan ever directed. That was the first time that we met in the movie, you know, after all those years. So I wanted it to be the first scene up so we can play on that natural awkwardness where I wanted it to feel like they were picking up right where they left off 20 years ago, but then right in the same breath have a moment of, I don't know this man and I don't know this person either. And I think it was really key in terms of how he wanted to set this movie up. So those are some of the things that we really wanted to show in that first scene is the juxtaposition of a, a brotherhood and a love and, and, a, and a relationship that was there, but knowing that they're so far apart right now and, and showing just how, the, how they're fragmented in a lot of ways, but then also seeing the bond. You're like, oh, I see how close they were. I get it, but something's not right. If you are anything like me, you have seen a lot of Rocky movies in your life. Uh, too many, 
arguably, depending on your tolerance for the slow motion workout montage and also at least one talking robot butler. And so when Creed 3 comes along here as the third sequel in a franchise that is itself a sequel, I do understand if your immediate response is less, you know, uh, eagerly running up a flight of stairs and more instinctively rolling your eyes at repurposed intellectual property. But today, Chris Connolly takes us inside the making of a sports movie that is deeper than you might think. And he tells us how a kid named Michael Jordan managed to grow out of the shadow of a couple of very big names. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Wednesday, March 1st, and this is ESPN Daily. So, Chris, what we're dealing with here is Michael B. Jordan playing the role of Adonis Creed. And this is the scion now of Apollo Creed, a key figure in the original Rocky franchise. He was Rocky's original opponent and then really good friend. And on the other side of the ledger in Creed 3 is Jonathan Majors. And we'll get to him in depth in a second here. But Jonathan Majors plays Adonis's prodigal best friend who is suddenly back from prison. And so that first scene you just talked to us about, that diner scene, the one they shot first, I imagine there's, you know, a particularly delicate and awkward dynamic underneath this. Explain why they chose to start with it. Well, I love it. And, and of course, when I heard that it was the first scene that Michael B. Jordan had ever directed of any kind, I assumed that he would have the same reaction I would. And I said, so you were throwing up in your trailer? <laughs> That's funny, you know, that was the first day. That really? Was, that was the first day we shot. So you're yeah. like throwing up in the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was there at the crack of dawn. I was helping setting up lights. I was in there bringing in lights and shit, getting the set ready. So it's about how these two guys are feeling each other out. And what came out of the conversations that we had with, with Michael B. Jordan was that this is part of something that he's dealing with. As somebody who's become so successful, what happens when somebody out of your past all of a sudden turns up in front of you. Mm. It starts to play on your head as you get successful, you know what I'm saying? As things, you know, happen for you, as you walk your path. When people that you used to have close relationships with, when they come back around sometimes in certain situations, I've had those awkward moments, you know, where we're not as close. I wanted to show what that felt like, what I feel like in those moments of, um, I have reconnected, I have re-embraced hasn't worked out for me, you know, and in those moments, but in some, and sometimes it has, and, and that's life. There's, you know, it's no black and white. It's, it's a lot of gray areas, and, and, and how you respond and, and react in those moments is what I wanted to show, show in this movie. And while he wanted to explore kind of the initial back and forth awkwardness of two people getting to know each other, that's the thing in the background, and that's the thing from his own life. How do you interact when people from a previous life turn up in front of you. And I think that makes the scene that much more exciting, as he said. Yeah, I'm getting the sense that as much as this is, you know, a, a sequel to an action movie, there's also a real art imitating life and, and even vice versa sort of dynamic at play here. Well, here's the interesting part for me anyway. I think Michael B. Jordan wanted to direct, wanted to tell a story because this has been on his mind. I think for me, I wanted to direct because it was the next kind of challenge in my life. You know, I had a point of view. You know, I had something I wanted to say. I just had 
more opportunities to put more of my perspective into the story, more themes that I wanted to share, things that I was going through personally, things that I've went through in my life that I felt like was, were, were universal and other people might be going through similar things. But what about Jonathan Majors here? This is the co-star, the antagonist of the film. How much of Jonathan's backstory, his psychology, is obvious to you in the character that he's playing? What even he may not have realized is that in the character he plays, Jonathan Majors had some things from his own life that he wanted to share. What did you want the threads of that character to be? The overcoming, the, the determination, the amount of focus and personal commitment it takes to remove yourself from the incarcerated mindset. And the way that that revealed itself kind of unexpectedly during our conversation makes his performance and his character that much more impactful, I think. And with Damien, you know, I, I know guys that run school with guys and, you know, I had my run in with, you know, being put away. It's the brain and the spirit that has to be free, you know, and that is something that I really hope people see in, uh, in Damien. Up next, how personal these two roles really are. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. So, Chris Connolly, I, I feel like we have to reflect upon the fact that there is a person named Michael B. Jordan who we don't even think about Michael Jordan, the basketball player, in the context of anymore. And he, he is really funny about that. You know, it was his father's name. His full name is Michael Bakari Jordan. And when we talked about his athletic career and he talked about how competitive he was, how he always played sports with a chip on his shoulder, he said, I mean, my dad named me Michael Jordan. <laughs> what was I supposed to do? I mean, my dad named me Michael Jordan. You know, I don't make jokes, you know what I mean? Of like, so I had to compete at something. I had to be competitive. That was not an option. I don't care what it was. I was going to be competitive at it. Wait, so give me the scouting report on young Michael Jordan. How is that player? Well, if you look at the New Jersey newspapers from 2005, you see Michael Jordan's name in the box score for the school in Newark that he attended. And he's playing basketball his senior year for this school while he's got a full-time gig on All My Children, <laughs> where, by the way, he replaced Chadwick Boseman. So mm. he's like commuting from New York where he's shooting alongside Susan Lucci and he's going onto the court and he's playing. And you see he's putting up some pretty good numbers. So I talked to the guy he played alongside, Daquan Raymond, who was also one of his best friends. He said, you know, decent offensive game because they used to play one-on-one -on -one a lot. And he said, got some hops, could take it to the rim and finish. But Daquan said he was at his best in some respects as a defender. 
that mm. he really was good at anticipating passing lanes and picking passes off. So a guy with some genuine skills by the testimony of those who saw him back then. But somebody who it sounds like was better at reading and reacting than he was at initiating game. Well, isn't that perfect, right? It's like, you know, and remember, remember he's a child actor from the earliest days. And one of the interesting things about Michael B. Jordan's career is that the turning points that we might think occur in his life are not necessarily the turning points that he sees in his life. Right. The turning points I'm thinking of here are, you know, his early iconic roles, like uh, Wallace in The Wire, and then, yeah, when he was in Friday Night Lights. And the movie that, one of the movies that he really feels is a turning point for him is a 2001 film uh, called Hardball. Oh, yeah. It stars Keanu Reeves. Of course. And Diane Lane, I think. And it was directed by Brian Robbins, who had done Varsity Blues and who is now the head of the Paramount studio. And it's a key film for him because he remembers Brian Robbins essentially asking him to get emotional on camera. Brian Robbins says that he took him aside and said, I want you to think about something that you desperately want and you can't have anymore. In Brian's recollection, in, in Michael B's previous recollection, he got very emotional and couldn't stop crying like cried for like a half an hour afterwards. And while that sounds like a traumatic thing, Michael B. Jordan says to have tapped into something like that at an early age, to feel that intensely made him sign on to become an actor. And so a big life turning point just from wearing a baseball uniform and getting very emotional. Yeah, I didn't realize Keanu Reeves was responsible for this story in some form. This is important for me to understand. But wait, but Chris, <laughs> I, I say this at a time in which there's this viral clip going around the internet. Yes. And this is from the red carpet at the Creed Three premiere. And Michael B. Jordan, now the adult, the sexiest man alive, Killmonger, all of these things as we know him, he encounters a figure from his past who happens to be a podcast host slash interviewer who he recalls for a very specific reason. We got Michael B. Jordan, the director and the star of Creed Three, And, you know, we know each other. We go way back all the way to Chad Science in Newark, okay? What a corny kid, right? <laughs> no, I did not say that. Misquoted for sure. Well, you're not corny anymore. <laughs> and, and you had just said that Michael B. Jordan, the young version of himself, was somebody who was just learning how to convey longing and yearning and all of that depth of emotion. And in his memory, it seemed like that translated back at school as being corny. Even from the start, he was an unusual figure, right? He was going in for work every day. He was starting to book jobs. He was thinking about a career. And it's very much been on his mind since he became a king of Hollywood with the kind of opportunities that you have. You're going to wonder about the people back home. I think for me, Sometimes that, that guilt coming from where I'm coming from, a lot of people don't make it out of their environment. I'm from North New Jersey. I'm from the hood. You know what I'm saying? And it's one of those things where, you know, why, why me? Why did I go that way? Why am I getting all the success that I'm having? And people that were right next to me in a lot of different situations, friends that I had growing up, why don't they have those same opportunities? You're going to, of course, wonder about how they viewed you and think about all that. And then when they turn up in front of you, whether it's in the movie, in the form of Damien, or whether it's on a red carpet, um, the difference between how you were viewed then and how you're viewed now, you have to succeed and pursue. And 
Ryan Coogler, who, of course, has directed Michael on, I guess, four occasions and serves as an executive producer on this project and also has story credit, runs down all the things that makes Michael B. so special. I think Mike's great at what he does. There's like the God-given thing that's at play that the person is just kind of blessed with, whether that's the way that they look or a certain charisma that they have, stature. You know, these are things that, that you, you can't like work on. And Kugler, who is no stranger to any of those things, has nothing but great things to say about Michael. But the other piece that I think pushes them to that level is the work ethic and the intelligence that, that, that goes with it. Mike has all of those things. And it's sort of what Michael B. was saying. If you want to get your message across more, you need to take control of things. And if that means that you answer to all these different departments, if that means you have to make a million decisions, if that means you can't be in your trailer just looking at your lines, he was ready to make that sacrifice. We're extremely blessed to get up you know, every day and play make-believe. But at the same time, you know, you want to be a leader and you want to lead by example. So I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't ask anybody to do that I wouldn't do myself. But speaking of playing make-believe, you know, this is where I do need to turn to Jonathan Majors, Chris, because he is suddenly that guy who is outperforming every big-budget action movie he's in, essentially. And he blew me away first as He Who Remains in Loki and then as Kang and Ant-Man. And these are all, like, enormous Marvel Cinematic Universe projects, of course, owned and operated by our employers, the Walt Disney Company. But the point is that there is a real undeniable depth and nuance to his craft as an actor. And so what is Jonathan Major's origin story here? This is a guy who grew up in Texas, who went to an arts college in, in North Carolina and wound up at Yale Drama School and has been doing amazing work for a long time. And like you say, is showing just a really unique level of talent right now. Michael B. Jordan is like a king of Hollywood. He can decide what he wants to do next. You think of someone like Jonathan Majors as an ascending star, mm. someone who is just getting raves every time he gets into oh, a movie. Stealing scenes, Magazine Chris. dreams at yeah. Sundance Film Festival. Kang, like you were saying, in Quantumania. And now Creed Three. And so these two outstanding actors go head to head. And when we see that scene we were talking about before, you can sense if you've watched the Creed movies, you're watching the future ring antagonist, right? Mm. You can tell that this is the guy who is going to put on the gloves and be a, a factor down the line in terms of this movie. But as we were saying, a key part of the backstory of Damian Anderson is that he is 18 years in prison. And what we learn is that they have some shared history, Adonis and Dame, that dates from before that, and it's significant and it's been hidden for a long time. But another thing that hasn't come up much is Jonathan Major's own background. And we were talking about some of his work, and while he was at Yale Drama School, he also directed something, a student-written play called 5013. 50 referring to the percentage of incarcerated people in America right now who are black. 13 referring to the percentage of American citizens who are black. And so this is not the first time he's been in a position to address black incarceration with his remarkable artistry. And as we began talking about that, Jonathan Majors told us about his stepdad, who had had such a huge influence on his life and who was himself someone who had been incarcerated for an extended period of time. 
So I was raised by a man who had been incarcerated for uh, 15 years. He was my stepfather, my main uh, paternal figure in my life, and I learned so much from him. And so you have to love someone in the totality. And a big part of his life was the fact that he was incarcerated. And so I began to be interested in the psychology of that um, as an actor and just as a stepson. And so uh, years later at the Yale School of Drama, uh, when I directed Leland Fowler in that piece, I was wrestling with that. It was difficult to try to bring that spirit, that uh, caged bird spirit, in that case, to the stage. And in this case, I had an opportunity to bring it to cinema and on humbly the largest stage possible. You know, Chris, I did not realize that there is this much direct material coming from their own lives into a story that feels on the on the surface level like, oh, this is an extreme sort of Hollywood kind of a script. Yeah, and for Michael B. Jordan, it was motivating. It was the thing that got him into the director's chair. I feel like I just got here. Last 12 months, I still feel like I just now have the ability to do what I want to do. I think uh, everybody's like, yeah, you can chill for a minute. I said, chill? Why? How can I chill? I just got here. <laughs> they just said, do what you want. I was like, all right. So it would be, it would be, a, nah, it would be crazy to sit down and, and relax. This is when I'll have all my opportunities. This is my chance to do something. Meanwhile, Jonathan Majors, who can pick and choose his roles a little bit, I think, at this stage, because yeah. he's having such great success and is so highly regarded, takes a role that allows him to bring some of his stepfather's past a guy who was incarcerated for a long time, a guy who, in his view, bears the scars of that, inc that incarceration and is able to use that experience and share it with the world. The thing about the way we incarcerate folks here in America is that it is done to such a degree that it's not just the body that is caged, the mind is caged. And the freedom that is offered, you know, even in exoneration, is just that of the body. You know, the mind is still in a place. Even in terms of his body, like when we see these guys, they all work out and they get their muscles and all the rest of it. But Majors makes an important point. He says, you know, this body looks this way for a reason. When you see uh, Damien, my goal was for people to see that's 18 years of determination, of fear, of rage, of loss. Um, and you see that in their body. Y you should understand that those abs were made from incarceration, from sitting in a room meditating on what it's going to be like when I get out. And so when you look at him, just the way he's remade himself. It's not just a fabulous body. It's a body that reflects trauma. And that comes very much from Jonathan Major's heart in his own story. The physicality of the character has got to fit the fact that this is a man who had big dreams and those dreams were deferred. And what does that body look like? The amount of potential that's coiled in it. Those muscles are tight and strong because they've not been used to their full potential. It was built through the trauma and the understanding and the belief that at some point that trauma would be exorcised. 
Eric, how to build yet another boxing movie. Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs of real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot. Taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Well, the question of how do you approach the, the transformation that you undergo as a boxer on screen, which is a lineage, Chris, that is populated by not just many works, but many great works. Right from Raging Bull to the fighter to the originals in the Rocky franchise. And so when you approach this as a first time director, albeit somebody who has been in a couple of those sequels before, what's the strategy here? How do they go about this? Well, the great thing is Michael B knows how to get in shape, right? Because he's done this before. And so he spends his time in the gym, but he says, not taking anything away from any of the actors I've worked with before, no one was more committed than Jonathan Majors in terms of the time he spent in the gym. And he said that so much that I said, was there some sort of rivalry between the two of you in terms of who looked better? I got a pass on this one because I was directing. So he, so, so like he, he had time to work out a lot more than I did. So that's my disclaimer, you know what I'm saying, in this one. So we, we, we give each other about that all the time. And Majors, meanwhile, says, my coach said, you fight how you live. We fight the way we live. And so the philosophy or the character spine, right, which is, you know, just drama school talk of Dame, right, which is, I'm, I'm playing him, I'm embodying him, you know, so you, you tap into one's own way of living. It gets really, you understand very quick, am I willing to take a hit? Am I willing to take it, you know? And what will it take for me to try to strike a man with all my might? Do I have that in me? And to do it, without rage, right? You begin to learn about yourself. Well, let's talk about how you shoot these scenes in the ring. Because again, you think about whether it's De Niro and Raging Bull and the artistry, just the way that was shot, the backlighting, all, I mean, there are textbooks literally that have been written about how to shoot a, a fight 
And for Michael B. Jordan, I imagine that's just as on a human level, that's just daunting, isn't it? Well, I think any and and you're right. And he said that much. He said I lot, had a lot of anxiety about it. I looked at it as a as a blank canvas. I think for the first time, I think I had a lot of anxiety going into it. Like, okay, how am I going to shoot this different? How am I going to make this knockout look special? Okay, we already did that. We did that injury. Okay, what new things can we do? And through that struggle, I think we found some beautiful surprises. And I think he put a lot of thought in that, you know. And my understanding is that one of the things they did was they shot it with IMAX cameras. So just the scale of it is going to be that much more mesmerizing. And I guess the size of the image will be incredibly compelling. At the same time, and this was interesting that Ryan Coogler pointed this out, for a guy who you would expect, and you are correct in your expectation, to be so good at directing scenes between people, exchanges of emotion, you know, where an actor is coming from. And that's not just him and Jonathan Majors, but with Tessa Thompson and the actress Mila Davis-Kent, who plays his daughter. All that stuff is great, but Ryan Cooler says there's a scene that's sort of an example of pure cinema where two guys are kind of working something really difficult out and without words, just in images and the way Michael B. shoots it, you really get a feel for what's going on there. There's a scene in this film where Mike is using purely cinematic language to show a guy grappling with trauma, shared trauma. Two characters that know each other at like the back of their hands, and they working it out the best way they know how. And I, I, I'm very proud of that scene because I think Mike was the only guy who could have directed it the way it's been done. So on the visual front, he fulfills the terms of the assignment as well. Yeah, and in terms of that assignment to be a plausible boxer, how much of actual boxing did they pull from? Who are the archetypes that they used to create, yeah, characters that in, in the case of Damien, who, yeah, haven't, haven't been around on screen before. And, and what Michael said about that was, we drew from people like Tyson, like from Bernard Hopkins, guys who fought with a level of intensity and viciousness that you really kind of remember, but also people from backgrounds where, this is Michael B. Jordan talking, from backgrounds that kind of enhanced or made that type of fighting style more realistic. So I just remember vividly watching, you know, Tyson just knock guys out, out like first round and my dad is, you know, being pissed off because like, oh, all the money I just spent on pay-per-view, you know, for like a three-minute fight. I'm a huge fan of Canelo, man. You know, one of you know, the best pound-for-pound -pound fighters and sort of be able to have him in our movie, I think is, uh, was, was, it was definitely a, a blessing. And I think we've always had real boxers be a part of the storytelling, which just helps blend the worlds, make it feel more real. From Jonathan Major's standpoint, it was important for him not to just Xerox or recreate a successful boxer. There's danger in that because you don't want the comparisons. Yeah. They're going to call me regardless. My physicality is a certain way. I'm long like Hearns. Uh, my shoulders round out like Tyson, you know. Uh, so all of that's going to happen because all of those boxers uh, pattern themselves off of the game itself, right? Uh, the sweet science. And so I went to the source. But ultimately, I was trying to add Damien to the canon of these great fighters, you know? And so it took discipline not to say, okay, I'll just fight like Floyd. I'll just fight like Frazier or, or, or Tyson. The first thing Michael B. Jordan ever said to Jonathan Majors was, when we come into the ring together, I want it to look like two gladiators. At the time, I was 32 years old, and though in shape, was not a gladiator. So I thought, okay, check. 
to get myself in that mindset and into that type of conditioning was going to be difficult. Well, Chris, as somebody who has seen movies that have tried to pull at heartstrings using boxing before, as someone who has seen the larger canon of sports movies, right? We know that there are cliches and archetypes and all of these constraints almost that you are saddled with as somebody who wants to make a good sports movie. How do you think Creed Three stacks up in that regard to you as someone who has surveyed not just the making, the behind the scenes of this, but also, yeah, the totality of your 40 years of watching sports films? Oh, it's more than that. I I was uh, I went to see The Great White Hope on Broadway in <laughs> 1969. Of course you did. That featured a mid-30s actor playing a boxer who became a major star as a result. And his name was James Earl Jones. Mm. So that goes back a long way for me. Let's face it, in 1976, Sylvester Stallone reinvented the boxing movie. Yes. One year before George Lucas would reinvent the space epic with Star Wars. Both films came out of nowhere. They didn't reflect anything in the culture at that time. They made their own zeitgeist. And we've seen that franchise be very successful all through the Rocky films. And this is the first in its long lineage. This is the ninth film from the Rocky films to Creed that does not have Rocky Balboa. This movie shows Adonis Creed standing on his own two feet. It was time for him to do that. He no longer needed a Yoda figure advising him. And so there's a kind of piquant thrill in that as well. This franchise is, is on its own and proud that way. But the fundamental satisfactions of a boxing movie are still the same. We love the competition, we love the buildup, we want the good guy to win. Part of what I love about this movie is that you get all that and you also get these more emotional stories along the way. Yeah, what you're saying, Chris Connolly, is that, you know, 40 years from now, you expect to be talking to more actors about more sequels. <laughs> I, I hope they'll be talking really loudly so I can hear what they're saying. <laughs> Thank you for making yourself heard, as always, on ESPN Daily. It's a pleasure. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>